could open your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians. We'll be reading chapter 3, verse 7 through 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one in the pew in front of you, and that's on page 965. On page 965 in the pew Bible in front of you. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, as we look through Scripture, we see your master plan unveiled from Genesis through Revelation. And in it, we see not only your grace and your love, but also your sovereignty over all things. We pray that you would be with Pastor Toby this morning as he comes to minister the word to us, and that it would find place in our hearts and your Holy Spirit would use it in our lives to glorify you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Hebrews chapter 11, there is a recounting of some of the great men and women in the Old Testament often called the Hall of Faith. And among those in that Hall of Faith is Moses. Moses was great. Moses' ministry was great. If you're familiar with the Bible, just think about all of the mind-blowing things that happened through the hand of Moses. Hebrews 11 actually tells us that it was without fear that Moses stood before Pharaoh and demanded that he let God's people go. And when Pharaoh says no, Moses becomes the vehicle of God's judgment on Egypt. So the plagues, of, you know, water turning into blood, filling the land with frogs and then gnats and then flies, the killing of Egyptian livestock, a breakout of boils on man and beast alike, the falling of heavy hail that killed anyone who was outside, who didn't have shelter, and all the beasts as well, the land covered with locusts, and then the land covered with darkness. And then finally, Moses announces a tenth plague, the plague of the firstborn, in which certain death would come to the firstborn son of every family. And then Moses goes and instructs God's people how to avoid that certain death through the blood of a lamb applied to their homes. 
And still after that, it is through Moses that the Red Sea parts and the Israelites walk through on dry ground. And then he lifts his staff and the sea collapses on the Egyptian army, defeating them. And then, as if that weren't enough, in the wilderness, at the hand of Moses, bitter water is made sweet. Rocks are now producing water. Disputes among people are settled through the wisdom that he has. And then he is the mediator of a covenant between God and man. Now, if you're not familiar with that language, a covenant is essentially an agreement, a contract, and it, it lays out the terms of a relationship between two parties. Some covenants are between those who are equals, equal in standing. They're just two people coming into like a business partnership may be that kind. Or we know today, the, the best example today would be a marriage covenant because men and women are equals in the sight of God. And if they're Christians, we are equal in standing in Christ. And when we come together, we make an agreement about the terms of the relationship. That's what all these vows are when, we, when, when they're taken. But then there's another kind of covenant that's made between those two parties who aren't equal. So take a conquering king and his nation coming into covenant with those who are conquered and will now submit to him. This is known uh, as a suzerain vassal uh, the suzerain being the conquering army or the overlord and the vassals being those who serve, that kind of covenant. The king makes certain promises about protection and provision for those who he's conquered, and those who are conquered then have obligations laid on them in order to enjoy the protection and provision of the one who has come. And that's actually the type of covenant that Moses mediates because God and man are not equal. And in this covenant, God makes promises of provision, of protection, of blessing. And He lays out the obligations for those who would enjoy the blessings of that covenant. Uh, uh, obligations that we know as the law. But the people will fail to keep their part of the covenant. And yet God mercifully provides for even that by setting up a sacrificial system so that atonement can be made for sin. All of that through Moses. Isn't that amazing? I mean, how many people would just say, I want to be there. I, want, I would love to see that. I want to, what does that look like for frogs to cover everything? What does it look like for the Red Sea to stand up and say, right this way, Israelites? What was that like? I want to have been there. It is awe-inspiring. It is a great ministry. And then you come to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 to 18. And Paul says, gospel ministry is greater. Can you even imagine such a claim? Really, Paul? Sermons, conversations, words, this is greater than seas being divided? This is greater than plagues on enemies? This is greater than rocks producing water? This is greater than the words of God engraved on stone tablets? Why, yes. Yes, it is. Paul says in this text, gospel ministry is greater than Moses' ministry. That's everything he's saying here. Gospel ministry is greater than Moses' ministry. You see, gospel ministry is related to the new covenant. The old covenant is mediated by Moses. It was established in the blood of sacrificial animals. These sacrifices had to be made all the time, not only because the people kept sinning, but because the blood of bulls and goats couldn't remove their sins. So they had to keep coming over and over and over to make sacrifice. The old covenant came with moral obligation that God's people couldn't keep. 
And so they suffered the loss of their blessing. But that covenant was never made to last. In Hebrews chapter 8 we read, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But there is a second covenant. There is what the Bible calls the new covenant. And Paul is laying it out as a greater covenant. It's mediated by Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. It's established in His blood. You remember that from the stories of the institution of the Lord's Supper? This is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus says. And Jesus' death is once for all. He makes atonement for all who believe in Him. His sacrifice never needs to be repeated. It is fully sufficient, and we know that because God has raised Him from the dead. He has sat down at the right hand of the Father, and it is finished. But not just that. In Christ, we have new hearts. We have the Spirit of God in us, enabling to obey. So, here's the fact of the matter. We still can't keep all the moral obligations that God lays on us. But the beauty of the new covenant is Jesus has kept all of God's moral obligations on our behalf. And through faith in Him, not only is our sin forgiven by His sacrifice, but His righteousness is credited to us And we enter all of that by faith. The new covenant is greater than the old covenant. Therefore, the ministry of the new covenant is greater than the ministry of the old covenant. Gospel ministry is greater than Moses' ministry. Now, Paul lays out why. First, by showing us that the new covenant comes with greater glory greater glory. The glory of the new covenant surpasses the glory of the old covenant. Now, glory is a word that sometimes we use, and we're not quite sure uh, what it means all the time. So, let's be reminded, glory is that which makes the importance of something known, the weightiness of it known, its majesty, its honor becomes known to others. That's what glory is. Glory doesn't is a communication of the weightiness and awesomeness and majesty and wonder of something, the honor of something, okay? So when we speak about the glory of God, we're talking about the public display of God's infinite worth, His holiness, His majesty. That's why we can rightly say that when Jesus comes, it is the glory of God being revealed to us. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, But the glory of God in the Bible is often pictured as light. And so what Paul is saying is that the glory of gospel ministry outshines Moses' ministry. Now, it's not that Moses' ministry had no glory, right? I mean, look at at verse 7. It had great glory. It came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. When Moses would go and meet with God and God would give him the instruction, his face would radiate with the glory of God. There was great glory in Moses' ministry. And yet, gospel ministry is brighter. And so, Paul makes his case by essentially making, doing, arguing from the lesser to the greater three times over. First, he says, the ministry of the Spirit outshines the ministry of death. Look at verses 7 and 8. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? I mean, Romans 7 tells us that the law is good and righteous and holy. It actually shows us God's perfect holiness. And as we read it, we are constantly… Aren't you constantly reminded when you read the moral obligations in the Bible, the do's and the don'ts? Are you constantly reminded, I am not perfectly holy. God is holy. I am not. We're like Isaiah in Isaiah 6. 
coming in to see the glory of God and say, woe is me. And because of that, the only thing the law can do is remind us of our impending death, an eternal death. And yet the ministry of the Spirit outshines the ministry of, the, of death because in the new covenant, through the preaching of Jesus Christ, through His sacrifice, we are granted the Spirit, and this, the Spirit, John 6, 63, gives life. The Spirit overcomes death. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and yet we have been made alive by the power of the Spirit. In verses 9 and 10, he says, the ministry of righteousness outshines the ministry of condemnation. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that's Moses, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. The law is glorious because it rightly condemns us. It absolutely says what is true of us, which is that we deserve condemnation, and in fact, we are condemned because we can't keep it. Cursed are those who can't keep all the words of the law, Galatians 3, quoting from Deuteronomy. But this condemnation is outshined by the righteousness found in Christ. Listen to Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the law tells us that God is right and just to condemn us. And then the new covenant comes along and says, God is just. God is right to condemn sin. And He will condemn sin in Jesus. And Jesus' righteousness will be given to you. That is an unbelievable exchange. The one who only deserves to be commended by God is condemned by God. So that we who should only be condemned by God are commended by God. That glory far outshines condemnation. And then the third argument here for greater glory is that the permanent outshines the temporary. The old covenant was temporary. Moses' ministry was brought to an end. Paul says it three times in verse 7, verse 11, and verse 13. It's not, it didn't last. It was brought to an end. The, 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 the word in Greek means to make something inactive or invalid. It's your license plate. The day after, the date has passed. And you drive with great fear and trembling because it is no longer valid. And so you make a beeline for the BMV only to realize this is the one weird day of the week the BMV is closed. But the old has been invalidated, inactive. So in Hebrews, after quoting Jeremiah 31 and God's promise of the new covenant, the writer says this in chapter 8, verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. It's invalid. The new covenant, however, is permanent. For what was being brought, this is verse 11, what was being brought to an end came with glory. Much more will what is permanent have glory. Remaining in the same condition. Nothing will change. His sacrifice is good forever. We've already said that. And because of that, we have eternal life. We have an eternal inheritance. The new outshines the old. Gospel ministry outshines Moses' ministry. In centuries gone by, large uh, ballrooms and things would have these gigantic chandeliers that would hang from the ceiling. And when evening came, the, 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 these chandeliers would be lowered by a pulley system so that all 
of the dozens and dozens of candles that were on the chandelier could be lit. And they were lit, and there were crystals on these chandeliers. The purpose of the crystals wasn't just to look pretty. The purpose of the crystals was to reflect the light so that it spread through the room. And so this chandelier would be lit, and it would be raised up to its place, and the whole room would light up, and it would be wonderful, glorious. But I want you to imagine if the candles made it to morning. If the candles made it to morning and they're still burning in the morning when the servants came in the ballroom and they threw open the curtains and sunlight flooded in to the room and filled every corner, you know what nobody notices anymore? The chandelier. Because the chandelier was glorious for its time, but the sun had come up. And the brightness and the glory of the sun made the chandelier pale in comparison. This is precisely what Paul is saying. Moses' ministry was glorious, but in Christ, the sun has risen. The sun is up and the old covenant pales. The candles are blown out. It gives nothing compared to Jesus, to the new covenant. You see, for those who don't believe in Jesus, what this means is that this very common notion that as long as I believe there's a God and I try to do my best to obey the Ten Commandments, all is well. This confronts that. This blows out the candle of any light that might come from such thinking. The only thing just believing that there is a God and trying to obey the Ten Commandments will lead to is condemnation and death because no one can keep the law. No one. I have family members who are convinced that God grades on a curve. That as long as you're better than the average person, whatever that means, then you fall forward into heaven and not backward. Now, friends, for us as Christians, this is important because it's important that we understand what evangelism actually is. Promoting biblical morality in our society is not evangelism. Trying to get your friend to live a more moral and better life is not getting them closer to the Lord. It is not saving. It will not ultimately help them. It is not good news even. The glory is in telling people of Jesus and His love, of essentially saying how marvelous, how wonderful, and your song could ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is the Savior's love for me. Gospel ministry has greater glory, but that's not all that Paul says. He also says that gospel ministry has greater power, has greater power. In verses 12 to 18, Paul talks about the powerful effects of gospel ministry. There are four of them. Uh, you could tease this out to five, but I think what I think of as the fifth one just links back into one of the four. So we'll only go with four, all right? The first one is hope. Look at verse 12. Since we have this hope. Isn't that interesting? Paul hasn't talked about hope yet. He summarizes the entire new covenant, the ministry of righteousness, the ministry of the Spirit, with one word, hope. He doesn't say, since we have this new covenant. He says, since we have this hope. Since we have this hope. We have hope because the... The Holy Spirit has sealed us as belonging to 
God, and we are counted righteous before God through faith in Jesus Christ, and this is permanent. The covenant we have with God in Jesus Christ is permanent. It won't shift. It won't change. It won't fade. Our hope is sure. Your career will shift. Your life will change. Your health will fade. But hope in Jesus remains. We should be rejoicing in that. We should be strengthened by that. We should be walking in faithfulness because of that. Isn't that good news? Who knows what will shift or change or fade this week in your life? But you know what won't? Hope in Jesus Christ. It will never fade. It will never shift. It will never change because it is rooted in a permanent covenant between us and God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Isn't that glorious? That's power right there. I mean, what else in our lives has the power to never shift or change or fade? Nothing. Nothing else has that power. Second thing is boldness. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. And then in verse 13, notice what he says. Not like Moses who put, put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Moses hid his face to protect the Israelites. We're bold, not like Moses. I mean, could you imagine anybody saying this? This is a man who stood up in front of the king of Egypt, said, let my people go. We're bold, not like Moses. He hid his face. Paul hides nothing. The glory of Jesus in the gospel is there everywhere. It shines. It radiates. Now, this begs a question for us, doesn't it? I, I just, just read that again, verse 12. Since we have such a hope... We are very bold. This is an if-then statement. Since this is true, this is true. I wonder why we're not bold. Now, boldness in our day is often confused for brash or just loud or rude. That's not what I'm talking about. Bold here means to speak straightforwardly with no thought of the consequences that might come. And I wonder why we're not bold. I wonder whether it marks all of your interactions with unbelievers or whether it just has marked some even this week. I wonder why we weren't bold in that moment. Could it be that our hope shifted? Could it be that rather than our hope being in the permanent life and righteousness we have in Jesus, is it possible that in those moments our hope shifts to the temporary opinion of other people instead of to the permanent life we have in Christ? Is it because we shifted from the eternal to the temporal? Friend, we'll never be, you, you will never be bold in your witness for Jesus Christ so long as your hope lies in this world because you'll wonder what other people are going to think, what friendships might come to an end, what family member might stop inviting me to be part of family celebrations. You might suffer all kinds of oppression from other people, being left out, being the outcast. And if avoiding those things is the thing that your life is aimed at, you will never be bold. But if our lives are guided by the unchanging, unfading, glorious hope of Jesus Christ and who He is and what He has done for us and the certainty of our future, which can never fade and never shift and never change, boldness goes up. My hope is not in this world. It's in Christ. We have hope boldness. The third is spiritual sight. 
It's interesting, under the Old Covenant, in Deuteronomy 29, verse 4, Moses tells God's people that God hasn't given them hearts to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. But things are different now. Look at verses 14 to 16 here. Their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So this picture of the veil continues, but we're no longer talking about Moses' face and and hiding the glory that radiates from his face. No, Paul now says, well, that's actually the, the veil is the least of your concerns. Here's the veil that's really the problem. There's a veil over our hearts and our minds. It's not hiding the glory that radiates from somebody's face. It's hiding the glory of Jesus that radiates from God's Word. That's what the problem is. Now, in this particular case, Paul refers to the Jews of his day. They're reading the Old Covenant and the synagogue and all these things. But the same is actually true of of all non-Christians. A veil is on the heart. It's true of us before we became Christians. It's it's true of us before God saved us. A veil was over our hearts. He says something very similar in chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You see, with a veil on your heart, let me tell you what happens. With a veil on your heart, you read the Old Testament and do you know what you see? You just see the history of some nomadic people who settled in a land. You see some prophets. You see some priests. You see some kings. You see a whole lot of do's and don'ts, and you see a whole lot of war. And that's all you can see. If there's a veil on your heart and you're reading the New Testament, all you can see is Jesus as a good moral teacher, a moral example for us, even a martyr. But that's not the whole story, is it? I remember riding around with a friend one day because I was having car trouble and I had no clue what was wrong. So I'm riding around with him and I'm riding around with him because he knows what he's talking about. And we're riding and it only took about three or four minutes down the road before he had discerned the problem and he proceeds to explain it to me. Now I listened to what he said. I heard his words I even knew what some of them were. I tried to understand. If, if, if squeezing my head would have helped, I would have done it. But it was, ho- it was hopeless because I am just not a car guy. So he could have talked for hours about what was wrong in the engine in my car. And all I, I, just, I just heard Charlie Brown's teacher, wah, 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 wah. That's everything I heard. That's a bit of what it's like to read the Bible with a veil over your heart. With a veil over your heart, you can read all the words of the story and never see the glory. You see, non-Christians may read the Bible quite a bit. And I'm thankful for that. Our friends who are not Christians may be in Bible studies, and I'm thankful for that as well. But if any of our friends are waiting until they see everything clearly before they turn to the Lord in faith, if they are waiting for every question to be answered to their satisfaction, do you know they will never turn? Notice what Paul says in verse 16. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. My friend may read and read like the Jews in Jesus' day. They, he or she may learn all types of things. 
they may end up surpassing many Christians in their knowledge of what the Bible says and doesn't say. But friends, information alone cannot change the heart. Information alone does not save. And it can actually harden your heart to have so much information with a veil over your heart. This is why Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So friend, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus, what Paul is saying is if you're not, if you're not prepared to turn, you will never see. You just will not see. You'll see words about the glory of Jesus in the Bible. You may even do a word study on glory and learn all kinds of things about glory and the Bible, but you'll never see the glory of Jesus with your heart and you'll never have life. Verse 14, only through Christ is the veil taken away. Interestingly enough, that phrase taken away is the exact same as earlier in verse 7, 11, and 13 when Paul uses the phrase brought to an end. Just as the old covenant was brought to an end by Jesus' coming, the veil that blinds us from seeing Jesus' glory is brought to an end when we turn to Him in faith. It's brought to an end. The Lord removes it. And we see. And according to verse 17, this is the only way to be free. So 16 into 17, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord, same Lord, is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from the veil. Freedom from the blindness. Freedom from the darkness. Freedom from sin and death and condemnation. Romans 8, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And that only comes when we turn to the Lord in faith. Dear friend, there is nothing that I would rather talk to you about if you are not a Christian than what it would mean to turn to the Lord in faith, to trust Him, to turn from sin and trust in Jesus Christ who died for you, so that you might be counted righteous, so that your sin might be forgiven, so that you would be brought into this covenant through faith in Jesus, and so it would lead to eternal life. No, every member of this church should want to talk to those who are not believers about this. There's no more glorious conversation to have than this. When people visit our church, there's something they need more than just to know that you're friendly and that you smile when you shake their hand. What if we made it our aim to have our lunch plans on Sunday opened to including newcomers to church so that we might just talk to them. Maybe we'll learn they're a Christian. They've been a Christian all their lives, and you can glory in the gospel together. What if, what if it led to an opportunity for you to share the gospel? There's nothing we'd rather talk to you about more. There's nothing I'd rather talk to you about more. Rather talk to you about more. And who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And for us as Christians, as we think about this, what this does not mean is that we throw everything before Matthew in our Bible away. What this means is that when we read those things that are prior to Matthew, we have the capacity to see the glory of Jesus radiate. How much glory of Jesus do you want to see? Well, you better read your Old Testament. Study your Old Testament. Don't just go to it when you need a psalm for the day. Don't just go to it when you need a little proverb to give you wisdom. Those are very important. Go to it and read about the prophets. And think about the prophet greater than even Moses.
Go to it and see the priests and see the light of the high priest who was to come. Go to it and read the kings who at their best were temporary and think about the eternal king we have in Jesus. Read of the sacrifices. Be overwhelmed at how many sacrifices had to be made and then glory in the fact that Jesus' sacrifice is once for all. Read your Old Testament. Don't just carry around a New Testament in your pocket. Carry the whole Bible. This is what Jesus did, isn't it? When he appears after his resurrection to the, on the road to Emmaus, Luke records, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Hope, boldness, spiritual sight, and last, transformation. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are, beginning, are being transformed into the image, for, into the same image of the Lord from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. How is it that the Spirit transforms us? Well, Paul says once we know the Lord, once the veil is taken away, we don't turn anywhere else. Jesus has captivated our attention and we can't look away. Susan and I were at a wedding recently and uh, my bride is always beautiful. That night, she was particularly radiant. Now, you husbands know what I'm talking about, right? You've been there. You've been at the wedding and the bride is lovely and the groom is handsome and everybody else is dressed up, but there's only one person in that room that's captivated your attention. And that's what Paul is saying Jesus has done. There is no other. He's it. He's not even saying, look to Jesus. He's saying the life of the Christian is beholding the glory of the Lord. That is life. Looking continually to Jesus Christ who is the image. And with unveiled face we are in awe of Him. Who He is. What He has done for us. And that awe, that captivation, that beholding of Jesus transforms us. How? Because that doesn't, I don't even know how that works. How do you just look at something and it changes you? Well, in the 1990s, it seems that the imagination of every young basketball player on the planet was captured by Michael Jordan. His play, his dominance on the court, his wagging tongue. So little boys and little girls decked out with Michael Jordan's shoes because he had so captured their heart, I got to do that. I got to be like that. I mean, there's a whole Gatorade campaign, right? Like Mike, if I could be like Mike. This was a whole campaign. Why? Because people would see it and you would see. I mean, uh, I don't know how many of you would admit it, but you know, in your bedroom, the little Nerf goal is hanging on the back and you're jumping from as far as you can with your tongue hanging out and you're trying to dunk from as far away as you can. If YouTube had existed in those days, countless would be the videos of people trying to imitate that. Why did the kids do it? Why would kids put off homework and put off chores and put off eating and put off riding bikes and put off reading in order to go out to the basketball court and practice, 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 practice? Why? because they beheld His glory. And that 
captured them and that transformed. They were so enthralled by that, it transformed the way they lived. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. As Christians, with the veil removed from our hearts, the glory of the Lord continually captivates us and changes us. We are captivated so that we become like Jesus. He is so sweet and so precious and so glorious and so beautiful. I must be like that. He has captivated us. John Owen, uh, in his work, The Glory of Christ, wrote this. The more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes and I will be more and more crucified to this world. It will become to me like something dead and putrid, impossible for me to enjoy. Friends, gospel ministry is greater than Moses' ministry. It has greater glory and it comes with greater power. But let's be honest, it doesn't often look like much. Does it? It, look, it looks like reading the Bible with a non-Christian friend over lunch. It looks like discussing guilt with a friend and sharing how Jesus is the only one who can deal with guilt. It looks like teaching children Sunday school. It looks like teaching at Good News Mission, interacting with those men one-to-one. -one. It looks like encouraging others to not look to the world's methods to solve problems, but to look to Jesus, who solves the only problem that will affect our eternity. And in light of that solution, we look to Him to help us live faithfully in all the problems of this life. It looks like a dad at the end of a long day sitting on the end of the bed with his son helping him understand that he sinned again and that Jesus died for him and that his son can find forgiveness through faith in Jesus. It looks like buying a Bible for someone who says they're interested in Christianity. It looks like seeing someone on the street and handing them a bag of groceries with a prayer and a tract. And it can look a thousand other ways, but it doesn't look like much. You see, the issue in the church today is that we think we have to make it look like something if it's actually going to be something. It needs to look really big and really powerful and really this if it's actually going to be really big and really powerful. But it's just words shared by someone who's being helped by God with someone else who needs to hear from God. It doesn't look like much at all and yet Gospel ministry is greater. God used Moses to shape the life of a nation. And God will use us to shape a brand new humanity when we do gospel work. Gospel work. Gospel ministry is greater. So as we go from this place, here's, what, here's our assignment. Do something greater with your week. Do something greater with your week. Do gospel ministry. Do it in your home. Do it over lunch. Do it over the phone. Do it in the cards you write. Do it in the email you send. Do it however it is the Lord opens the door for you to do it. Wouldn't it be great if we just all did something greater this week? We can. We can. Let's pray.
Our Father, we bow before you humbled at what you have given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, the covenant we have, his blood shed for our sins so that we are forever forgiven and you will remember our sins no more. That in the new covenant you have taken out our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. You have put your spirit within us that we might walk in your ways. You have literally changed everything through Jesus Christ. And we are humbled by that. And we are thankful that someone in our lives did something greater with their week and reached out to us with the gospel. And we pray that in this day and in this week and in the weeks to come, we will be a people committed to doing that greater ministry. Doing that greater ministry around the world through our partnerships with missionaries. Doing that greater ministry here at home by taking the gospel to the end of the street. Impress in our hearts and minds that gospel ministry has greater glory than everything else. That while it doesn't mean we don't care for the poor and visit the sick and all of the other things that are implications of the gospel, while it doesn't mean we avoid those things, it means we remember, Lord, remind us that gospel ministry is greater. A new shirt on the back will never change a person's heart, but by your grace, you can clothe them in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And convince us that the greater power in ministry comes through words words of Jesus Christ that they give us boldness as we give hope to one another that through them your spirit gives spiritual sight and over a lifetime of hearing them we are transformed from one degree of glory to another renew in our minds a glorious vision of Jesus Christ that we would be in awe of him and become like him We are thankful that no matter how the journey goes in this life, that in the end we will be made like Him because we will see Him face to face. Thank You for that promise and that hope. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.